Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. And welcome to Talking Biotech number 18. Uh, today's guest is Dr. Steve Savage. Uh, Dr. Steve Savage is an expert in chemical controls for weeds and insects and just an amazing resource and someone I got to know during our time in Hawaii when we were visiting the Hawaiian island of Kauai uh, to talk to farmers and to even local politicians about what, uh, what these seeds and what these chemicals really are and they didn't want to listen to the companies they wanted to listen to scientists and so they had us come over to discuss with them and it was a really uh, it was a very interesting time because it was a watershed for me in learning about communication and Hawaii is a wonderful place because of the soft way that even adversarial conversations can occur and not that they always do but um, the idea of what they call talk story you uh, Put your discussion into a format that's respectful and that uh, takes into consideration the feelings of others. And I learned a lot uh, during that trip when I didn't do that very well, um, found a way to dial it down and be much more effective. And that was a lot of fun. Really, uh, it was a great time. It was a difficult time. It was a challenging time. But I think it'll be something we look back on in, uh, in a few more years as one of the contentious hot-button sites of the biotech discussion uh, where really distracted us from our main goal, which should be how do we get the technology into the hands of the farmers who need it and the developing world who's desperate for better solutions um, for their nutrition. So at this point, we'll go ahead and listen to my interview with Dr. Steve Savage as we discuss what's happening with pest control, weed control, both in conventional and organic crops. And this week on Talking Biotech, we're really fortunate to have with us uh, really an old friend, um, uh, someone who really understands the idea of pesticides. And when we talk about pesticides, we think about herbicides, fungicides, insecticides, all of the chemicals that help us control critters and uh, problems which are agricultural pests, hence the name pesticides. 
And someone who's been working on this area for a long time is Dr. Steve Savage. And he's a independent consultant. He also is a blogger. He also is a very frequent, uh, frequently high-in-demand speaker. And I've had the opportunity to not only see him speak, he does a wonderful job, but also meet with him in person. And uh, welcome to Talking Biotech, Steve. Hi, Kevin. Good to be here. So um, we, we can go in many directions, and the point of pesticides always comes up in the discussion of biotechnology. And what I'd like to do for today's episode is kind of step back from the direct discussion of, of um, things like glyphosate and BT. And what I'd like to do is talk about where we were, where we are, and where we're going in terms of both conventional, maybe organic, and just kind of talk about how um, crop protection is used. And so let's just start out with, um, and I remember this was so cool when I was with you in Hawaii, and we were talking maybe to the Chamber of Commerce on uh, on Kauai, and uh, they were asking, they kept saying things like, oh, well, what about... Um, uh, two. Uh, um, what did they say? DDT. What about you know, or, yeah, or, organophosphates and uh, and uh, DDT? And you had some really interesting points for them. And do you remember how that went? Well, one of the things is that people there were sort of acting as if um, our whole regulatory process was corrupt. You know, the rotating door. You can't trust it. And and what I was trying to say is. You know, when you say those things, you're basically saying the entire environmental movement was a failure. And that's just not true. I I often think if some of the early leaders uh, of that were able to come back today, they would be so disappointed that people are acting as if nothing's changed. And and that's not true. (laughs) A lot changed. I mean, you know, you go back to the 1960s, and yes, there were things that went wrong and, and people didn't understand that we would be in those you know public meetings sometimes and people would raise all these points and say but what about this and what about this and I said can you come up with something that's not 30 or 40 years old you know uh, yeah, and, I, I think that's a great point I think Rachel Carson may be very proud of uh, some of the directions we've gone in I think she could I think she should be um what what I like to say is that the reason that things have changed is sort of the work of a really unlikely team. You you have uh, a bunch of farmers on the one hand who actually are way more innovative than than people would imagine and much more quick to adopt new things. You have the environmental movement, which certainly was raising issues. You had a whole new science of in, environmental science and, and toxicology that developed, you know, in the last century. And uh, then you've had a massive investment on the part of the chemical industry and then the biocontrol industry. And so a lot of things have changed, and it's not what it was. I mean, I've been in agriculture now more than 35 years, and I can tell you it's very, very different than it was when I first came in. Well, even in the last, uh, let's say, 20 years since the advent of biotechnology, how have things really changed with respect to things like insecticide use and uh, not just the amount that's used, but also the types that are used? Right. Well, there, there have been a lot of changes there. I mean, one thing is and you know it it's 
can be clearly documented in something like uh, the California historical use data. The old sort of nasty things that you hear about, uh, the relatives to DDT, the chlorinated hydrocarbons, and then the organophosphates that were cholinesterase inhibitors, the use of those things has been going down and down over time. We're down to just very few of those that are used in very specialized niches at this point. Um, and they've been replaced with you know, successive families of whole new modes of action. Uh, there, there were the synthetic pyrethroids, uh, which were a lot milder, but yeah, still you know, fairly toxic. Then we moved into neonicotinoids, and we've moved into a couple of new families since then. Um, and at each step, what we've, we've had is usually something less toxic to us with less environmental damage and also something delivered a lot more uh, sort of accurately and, and right to target. People have gotten very worked up about the whole idea of seed treatments of crops, but if you look at the alternative before that, where you were doing, you know, major soil drenches or sprays of, of the whole field, the idea of putting a little bit of a systemic insecticide in a plant to protect it during the very vulnerable period of, of germination is actually a breakthrough. And uh, other than some dusting issues that did, in fact, have some bee issues, on the whole, I'd say that that's been a huge advance in terms of environmental safety and bee safety, actually. And I, I think I see that all the time, that when, you know, the uh, kind of the iconic in, uh, image of the people who are against the use of any kinds of insect controls are the images of the crop duster, which is this giant plume behind it, which is, you know, showering the school and then the kids are playing in the in the <laughs> in the cloud of funk. And, you know, really, this is a surgical way of installing the crop protection in the plant itself. And you raise the idea of the dust, and certainly that that was a concern, that the way that the dust from the plant, planters would generate could have potential impacts on bees or other insects. But how does the systemic approach limit the exposure of things like beneficials or non-targets? Well, it does in the sense that unless something eats it, um, it, it really can't get to the insecticide that's inside of it. Now, there is one exception that occurs under sort of specialized situations. Uh, you know about gutation in plants, right? What Where is that again? A, bit, a droplet of water oh, yeah. from sure. the roots can come out through the hydathodes on the edge of a plant. And that's not dew. It's actually, you know, water that has come out of the plant. And in certain situations, yes, there can be some of the systemic insecticide there. And... Um, What's interesting about that is that not all plants make those little droplets, but there are bees that are specifically water-gathering bees. I guess it has to do with the genetics of their dad, which drone was their dad. And um, they go around and collect water, and that's not their preferred site, but if that's one of the more abundant water sites, they will go after that. So, you know, it's it's a complicated thing, but there are parts of the world where there's a tremendous amount of use of neonicotinoid seed treatments, like in canola in Alberta. And they absolutely need bees for pollination of their seed crop, and their bees are doing just fine. And the same thing is true in Australia. 
the whole B situation is is much more complicated than just a simple, oh, it must be the neonicotinoids. Yeah, I think I've heard some really excellent discussion on this, and I've, I've mentioned his name on this podcast a few times, is uh, Randy Oliver from Scientific yeah. Beekeeping, keep, scientificbeekeeping.com. Uh, Randy has been fantastic with discussing, you know, how the surgical applications are a little better. And those of us who have been around ag, who have seen the, you know, the yellow planes load up on the ground with insecticides, fly over to a field and, and, and do the treatments, you know, that, that is, uh, and these are on uh, really crops that aren't protected by GM traits or maybe by neonics. And uh, they do manage the uh, insects during specific windows in crop development. But at the same time, those are taking out pretty much any insect in the field, at least as I understand. And well, it depends on the chemical involved. That you know, that's that's very specific to that because some things are more and less protective. But you know, as I, I'm sure you know, there's probably three ways that biotech could protect bees. But unfortunately, the opponents of biotech will probably prevent it from doing that. I mean, there are a lot more crops that could be BT crops that, you know, express that extremely specific toxin. So that if there was a pest that is in the crop during bloom, you wouldn't need to spray anything for it. Um, there's, there's, you know, the possibility also of, for certain crops to modify them in such a way that they don't actually need bee pollinators. Imagine if almonds could self-fertilize, um, like grapes and corn and all sorts of things do. Yeah, that's uh, very true. And, and especially, you know, you think about it from the side of the almond grower, where if you didn't need, because a lot of these are self-incompatible too, which means that you right. need to plant uh, not just the almonds you want to grow, but also ones that you don't want to grow because you can't self-fertilize, so you have to uh, get pollen from somewhere else. And then it's got to be moved, usually by a bee, where they truck in loads of hives. Yeah. And, so, and, and we truck in all of the bees just about all of the bees in the United States to California for spring break. And any sort of, you know, public health person will tell you that getting everybody in one place for spring break can be a bad idea for certain disease spread. Well, sure, especially because of the, you know, bees gone wild, the drunken... Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, you, you know, if I, if, I, if I see another naked stinger again, I don't know. <laughs> um, so we talk about the, the improved surgical nature of the of the insect control agents that we have and uh and still i think a lot of the folks i work with down here in florida where pests are the rule really tell us that there's not enough uh research and there's not enough investment in identifying new mechanisms of insect control so how do you feel about that well there are several companies and there have been um for many many years that even back when I was working, I worked for DuPont back in the 1980s, they were investing a billion dollars a year in the screening and development of new chemicals. And there were multiple companies doing that. And that's been going on for 20 or 30 years. So to say there hasn't been an investment is you know, a little bit naive. There's been a huge investment. And that's the reason that there are so many new and different things. But what's interesting is that what we use in agriculture today um, 
is a mixture of kind of extremely old things that are sort of tried and true that have been through the regulatory process and survived because they haven't turned out to have real problems and really new and different things. Um, yeah, uh, that that have way, way better properties, usually way better both in terms of efficacy but also in terms of selectivity. Um, no, it's a, my grandfather was kind of the repository of uh, dangerous chemicals that worked great. And uh, he had a cabinet in the basement that he would keep these things in. And he had chlordane, uh, all kinds of other goodies. And as, yeah. a, as an apartment owner in, in the city, he had a lot of uh, stockpiled when the stuff was going to be banned. He had a stockpile of uh, all the stuff that really got the job done. And so that... Yeah. It, it did. Wow. But <laughs> I know my, my father-in-law just moved into a retirement home and, and he, he gave me this jug of chlordane and said, oh, here's something I've been saving. And it's like, gee, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Now I've got a toxic waste disposal problem. Yeah, and especially in the state of California, I think you may be um, subject to RICO statutes and have that confiscated and, you know, find you in a <laughs> find you in zip ties. <laughs> So we talked before about insecticides and how they've kind of changed through the years. What do we know about the way that herbicides have changed and our modern suite of herbicides with either biotech or non-biotech crops? Herbicides are interesting because um, it really turns out, for some reason, to be harder to find new herbicides than new insecticides or new fungicides. I'd say the only thing harder to find than a new herbicide is a new nematicide. Um, and so, uh, be because one of the things that, that you need to do with herbicides, ideally, is find something that will take care of what we consider weeds, which unfortunately is a very diverse group of plants, but not affect um, the crop that we want to grow. And uh, back, actually, the first herbicide I ever heard of in, in my career, I was just starting off my first exposure to ag, and I was out in a vineyard because I happened to be working on diseases of grapes. And I was in this vineyard, and um, there, there was just perfect weed control in the vine row where you would want that, and the middles where you would like a cover crop were perfectly fine, but there was something that even two weeks into being in vineyards, I saw, which was that was happening, but there wasn't. it wasn't all plowed up because what they used to do in grapes is they had a thing called a French plow, which was a hydraulically controlled blade that would pop in and out of the row and, and till up just right between the vines, but hopefully miss the vines. And I, this, this vineyard didn't have all that plow damage. And so I asked the guy what was going on. And he said, oh, this is a brand new herbicide called Roundup. And uh, it works great, and you can spray it right down the row. It, it has no effect on the vines. And so uh, this was in 1977, so a heck of a long time before biotech. And Roundup, glyphosate, was a huge product for many, many years before biotech because what it did is it would basically take out just about any weed, but it wouldn't affect 
a perennial plant at all. If there wasn't a green leaf for it to go through, it wouldn't hurt the perennial plant. It also didn't move, you know, like some of the herbicides of that time, like atrazine had this this tendency to move with, with water. It didn't do that. It, it just stayed right where you put it. You could even seed into the ground later if you wanted to, and it didn't affect that. And, and the other remarkable thing was that it was really not toxic to um, animals. And most herbicides weren't terribly toxic to animals, but they were somewhat. But this one just really wasn't at all. And so it was kind of a big deal. And, uh, and so the idea of being able to sort of achieve that same thing that we had seen in perennial crops with uh, a crop like soybeans was sort of a dream that lots of people had. I, it, sort of the story that you hear is, oh, well, this was concocted in you know the back rooms of Monsanto to sell more glyphosate. No, actually, the guy who really stepped out in the early days of a small startup company and did the first biotech, you know, sort of the first proof of concept for the idea that you could do glyphosate resistance was a postdoc straight out of a basic lab, wonderful guy from... Uh, Italy originally, and uh, oh, yeah. not a commercial bone in his body. He just understood that that would be really cool if you could do that. Is that Luca? Luca, come on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he may not appreciate being called out on that, but yeah, he, he's the one. He, he just he demonstrated that it could happen in, in, in a bacterium because at that point people had not successfully transformed a plant. That's that's really interesting. I I kind of took a wild stab at that, but uh, very very. Uh, it, it is such an interesting history to hear about how these things came about, and yeah. and when we talk about uh, glyphosate and glyphosate resistance in the Roundup, you know, resistant crops, how um, rapidly were these modalities adopted by farmers once they were deployed in our major ag crops? Yeah, you know, what's really ironic about that is that okay, okay, here's this basic science postdoc sort of understood that that would be a cool thing. The conventional wisdom in 1996 when Roundup Ready crops were first launched in in cotton and canola and soybeans. Uh, by that point, you know, I was pretty tied into the conventional seed and chemical business and everybody was like, nah, no, 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 nobody's going to really care about this. They have perfectly good uh, herbicides, uh, th- this is not going to be a big deal. And so the conventional wisdom couldn't have been further from the truth. The The rate of adoption just sort of blew everyone away. And um, again, you know, the story is, well, this was all about controlling the seed market. Well, if Monsanto had wanted to control the seed market, their strategy was completely wrong because what they did was a broad licensing strategy that basically made this trait available to everybody. The, the logic for doing that was you need all sorts of genetic backgrounds to, to be able to be suitable for different places. And so to try to do that from one seed company or two or three or whatever they bought, you know, you couldn't do that. And so the, that, that's what happened. And, and so all the companies had sort of dabbled in it just in case, and they all quickly realized, oh, shoot, this is a big deal. That's always my um, my problem too. Is I always underestimate the routes to world domination. You know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you got to have a few. You got a few irons in the fire for that kind of thing. 
Um, an interesting angle that you might appreciate. I was recently speaking with a Kenyan farmer who told me that they're trying to bring um, the BT cotton into Kenya. And uh, farmers are very excited about this and they're starting to grow the BT cotton. But then the chemical companies, and I don't know who they are in terms of you know their multinational names, but the chemical companies have told the Kenyan farmers, we will pay you to not grow the BT cotton. Because we would rather sell you the pest control than you have to buy those seeds. And so they're actually using, and these are people who don't necessarily have the right protective uh, equipment. They're uh, children who are doing the spraying. They're using insecticides more than they have to because you have to guarantee the crop or else you don't eat. So this is, it's a really interesting spin on the story from what we normally hear from the industrialized world about how these are companies that are only trying to sell seeds to um, to uh, control the market. Here we have chemical companies that are dissuading people from using the seeds so that they can control the market. Well, the problem, Kevin, is when, when you get into those parts of the world where, where you get into um, parts of Asia and Africa and, and whatnot, we're, we're kind of not talking about the same suite of chemical companies and the same suite of um, chemicals being used. They don't have a regulatory process that necessarily has gotten rid of all the things that we've gotten rid of. It's sort of a scary thing, but, but the truth is that even in places like India and China, which have all of that, I mean, you know, you you would hate to think what is available and what unfortunately is being used by people on their brinjal or whatever. That was still all overwhelmed by the grower response. They're like, no, this this works great, and you know this this gives me much more stability, much more protection. Because yes, on the one hand, they can't afford to have a crop loss, but on the other hand. They don't have the same kind of, uh, you know, crop financing possibilities and everything. They, you know, you, you talk about how how do you get your crop financing in India? At least in the past, it's something that we would consider the mafia. You know. Yes, and then the uh, the issues with counterfeit seeds and many of the other issues that have been addressed by Ron right. Herring, who I hope will be a guest here soon too. Um, yeah, no, he's been he's totally tracked this, and he's an expert on that. So let's take a quick break, and we'll take a break here, and then we'll come back on the other side of this discussion to talk about the evolution of pesticides and the way the pesticides are changing, and we'll touch a little bit on herbicides and maybe even move into some of the uh, pest control solutions for organics. And so this is Talking Biotech, and I'm Kevin Folda talking to Dr. Steve Savage, calling in from California, and we'll be back in just a couple minutes. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast that discusses how the newest technologies in traditional breeding and genetic engineering conspire to improve medical treatments as well as animal and plant products. The idea is to use our best tools to feed the needy and help the farmer and do so with respect to our planet. The Talking Biotech Podcast is financed and produced 100% by Dr. Kevin Folta and is separate from his popular outreach workshops. If you'd like to help, please write a review on iTunes or tell a friend to listen in. With every episode, our numbers grow 
and your listenership is truly appreciated, as moving innovation to application requires communication. And so we're back with Talking Biotech, and our guest today is Dr. Steve Savage. And Dr. Steve Savage is an expert in control, especially chemical controls, of all of the different uh, aspects of plant biology and the organisms that threaten crop production. So all of the insects, the weeds, the microbes that jeopardize effective farming. And we're answering questions and talking about the different aspects of the different types of pesticides that are used in agriculture today. So I guess we should maybe segue for the remainder of the of the yeah. discussion into a really controversial area. And frequently when we talk about insecticides and pesticides, especially when we're discussing this with uh, folks in the produce aisle over at Whole Foods, which I do, um, it, it makes me really popular. I'm sure. It, oh, yeah. And, um, and I'll say, uh, you know, the... Um, why do you choose the food choices you do? And people will say, well, because I try to avoid pesticides and insecticides. So what do you know about the way that pesticides are used on organic food? Well, okay. First of all, this this sort of impression that organic means no pesticides, that is a completely false impression that most people have and it is I think a little bit promoted as a convenient fiction by some of the marketers of organic but it's absolutely not true Um, there are definitely pesticides which are used and which are needed not not that pesticides for either conventional or organic growers are the only way they do this you know it's all part of integrated systems these days with genetics and and you know, all sorts of other things that that are put together. But still, if you're going to be very successful, pests pests are real, and and they they need to be controlled. And so there are a whole bunch of things that are allowed for use on organic crops. Uh, There's an organization called OMRI, and uh, you can go to the website and see their allowed substances. And I forget how many pages, 90 pages or something, a PDF file of, of the things that are allowed. And um, there's, there's a lot of things. And the criterion for what can be used as an organic pesticide is that it's natural. When the USDA was charged in 1990 with setting up the organic rules, they actually wanted to try to put something into the rules that was based on, on a safety criterion of some type. And the hardcore organic people, and particularly the hardcore organic consumer people at the time, were adamant that no, no, this it has to be natural. It was, it's really a philosophical um, decision there. Because just the fact that something's natural does not mean it's safe. Now, there are plenty of perfectly safe natural things, but some of the most toxic things that we even know about are natural products. Mm-hmm. So uh, there, there is a long list of things and what's interesting, I, I, I was, for a talk that I need to give uh, this winter, I, I was decided to look at, yeah, let, let's take a whole year of California pesticide use. Because there's this wonderful, public, transparent, searchable database there called CalPIP, California Pesticide Information Portal. And it's done by sort of the California EPA, California Department of, of, of Pesticide Regulation. And you can go there and... and 
in California, we have a thing called mandatory reporting. So if you're a commercial applicator in agriculture or, you know, homeowner pest control, you know, professional pest control people, they have to report everything they use. So there's this very big database, and you can look through it, and you can see what it was. And so I was looking through it, and I was like, wow, it's amazing how much of this is organic. So I went ahead and, and really pounded through the whole list, checked it against the OMRI list, and ended up finding out that 55% of the total pounds used in 2013, which is the latest data that's available, um, qualifies for organic, or at least the active ingredient does. Sometimes you have to jump through special hoops, you know, to get your particular brand name certified that way, but chemically it's the same thing. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that it was used on organic crops, no, right? It, it does not, right. because a lot of these things that are used are extensively used by the conventional growers. In fact, there, there's this huge overlap of, of what they use. And in fact, in a great many cases, they are the same grower. There's a lot of conventional growers that do a bit of organic because they get a price premium, you know. Absolutely. I know a number of organic grow or well, conventional growers that will use glyphosate and cover crops to suppress weeds, control weeds on a given spot, and then use that to represent, say, um, maybe twenty percent of their of their acreage because they can do something like grow broccoli or cabbages or something and get a, well, a very strong. But they have to go through the three year transition thing. So. No, they do that. They do that with yeah. just letting it but, fallow right, with the cover. But they, they clean it up first and then they they go through that. Well, or the other thing that happens a fair amount, and I know this happens a lot in apples, is that you'll have a big block of apples, and in the middle of the block you have a section that you convert to organic, maybe 10% of the total. And you do a really good job of um, insect control on the 90%, and that keeps the population of a flying insect down to a low enough number that then you can use something like pheromone confusion or something like that to control it in, in the middle. Yeah, a lot so like they do. There's some games that are played like that. Yeah, a lot like they do with the papayas, like the genetically engineered papayas. Right, and have a little a little bit of organic in the middle. Yes. And, you know, I, I far be it from me to tell a farmer of any type what they should do, you know, if, if they can make a business doing it. It's just the consumer should just realize that, yes, there are pesticides that are used, and so then it comes down to the question of, well, are those things safe? Are they somehow any safer than the synthetic things that are used. And that's interesting when you drill down into it. It's, it's like, well, the reason that we can be confident that either category is safe is that it is regulated very carefully and that it's under some pretty strict rules and the people who apply it have to take a lot of training and jump through a lot of hoops. So, And, and I'm very confident with either whether you're an organic farmer or conventional that when you're using a compound, you understand how it's used and use it responsibly. But I think that the myths around the use of organic, uh, friendly, let's just say, insecticides is a little bit, it needs to be really talked about, especially in with respect to things like um, non-target insects. Now, one of the big ones is mineral oil. And how does that affect an insect and how selective is it? 
Well, it's it's sort of selective in the sense of is it something sort of small enough or soft-bodied enough to sort of be able to be suffocated because it's not a very sophisticated control method. Most of the really big pesticides that are used in terms of pounds are what what would you, you would sort of call sort of brute force mode of action. What's nice about that is you don't develop resistance to it, you know, because it's not a specific mode of action. So you have sulfur, okay, far and away the largest pesticide use of all in California. Mm-hmm. Um, sulfur, the one material, is 27% of all the pesticide that's used in California, okay? And it's been used since ancient times. It's just the element sulfur. And what happens is it's it's there as a particle, small particle on the leaf, and it sublimates that thing you heard about in chemistry class in high school where you go straight from the solid to the gas phase. And in the boundary layer, the first 100 microns or so above the surface of a leaf, it's really humid because the leaf is transpiring, and the sulfur reacts and turns into various things like sulfur dioxide and, and, and sulfur, you know, just various really reactive sulfur compounds. And those just oxidize things and, and, you know, have sort of a generalized mode of action. And those can suppress a fungus like powdery mildew or little things like mites. And it works. And uh, it doesn't work so good if it's too cold. It burns the plant if it's too hot. It's something you have to reapply every seven days. You know, it's it's a brute force kind of thing. And as having spent a great deal of time working in vineyards, because that's where my graduate work was, it's a really unpleasant thing to be around. It's not poisonous. It's not toxic. Nobody needs to worry about eating it. But I can tell you, if, if you don't wash the clothes from the vineyard, you know, that you used in the vineyard, everything you own will smell like sulfur, and it's not a pleasant thing. Yeah, and I, I've seen, actually, uh, control with sulfur. And it's amazing how the, uh, in, in grapes actually, it's amazing how those vineyards look. I mean, it's not like a, it's almost like, a, I guess maybe the best analogy was like if you had a yellow snowfall uh, come down on that on that vineyard. I mean, it's everywhere. It can be, a typical application is, is like 10 pounds an acre. And the reason you're applying it every week isn't because that's gone away. It's because there's new growth. And so you have to hit that. So... The older leaves have got several weeks worth of 10 pounds an acre on them. Yeah. Now, so one time, this was like 1983 or 4, I was out in one of our little experimental vineyard blocks uh, on UC Davis campus, and it happened to be at the time of year that grapes were blooming. Well, grapes blooming is not very impressive. They don't even have any petals. You know, they're self-pollinated. They don't need to attract any pollinators, whatever. But I was there, and there was a nice aroma. You know, there was, there was the smell of flowers. And I thought, okay, I've been doing grapes for two or three years. How come I never smelled the blooms? And then I realized I was in an experimental plot where they were looking at a new fungicide called Balaton, which instead of having to be applied at 10 pounds an acre every week, was being applied at a few ounces every three weeks. And it was systemic so that it 
could move up and protect the new developing leaves. That's why it could be sprayed so rarely. And it was very non-toxic and, and all that kind of good stuff. And it was like, wow, that's radical. And that took the grape industry by storm. I mean, everybody loved that. It, it used to be that you had to hire somebody basically in the vineyard to, you, you sort of sized how many people you hired to do this so that somebody spent every day out dusting sulfur. You know, that was somebody's full-time job somewhere in some part of the vineyard and then turn around and start doing it again. And so the grape industry immediately jumped to this new thing. And, of course, the downside of that is that, uh, you know, they quickly selected for resistance in the fungal community. Um, fortunately, it turned out to be a sort of a tolerance, not a resistance, and, and newer triazole fungicides, which is what this was, uh, actually work again, and, and there's new families as well. But the grape industry has learned the lesson, and so they always keep a certain amount of sulfur in their programs as a resistance management thing. So that's the reason that conventional growers are still using uh, a fungicide that goes back to Egyptian times, which has plenty of downsides. Not terrible. Not, you know, it's nothing awful, as long as you're not a great farm worker, you know, it, it's not such a bad thing. Well, what about biocontrols and, and those opportunities to uh, aid in the management of pests in an organic conve- uh, production strategy? You know, I spent seven years working at a company that was developing biocontrols, and it was a very popular concept in the 80s, when, or no, sorry, the, the 90s when I was working there. Um, and it has gotten kind of a whole new wave of investment. All, all the big uh, chemical biotech companies have, have invested in biocontrol companies over the last few years. And it's a wonderful idea, and it's, it's a lot of fun for a biologist to work on, but it's really hard. Because, yes, biological controls can be just, you know, super specific, precise things. You know, just in the same way that BTs have always been, you know, that, that it can just get one kind of insect and not another, or one kind of weed and not another. Um, but they can also tend to be too specific, um, and they can be very difficult to work with in the sense of it's a live thing. How do, how do you turn this into something that you can make and ship around and store for a while and all? You know, so there are a whole bunch of difficulties, and and so there are a bunch of things out there, and they're used. They're widely used by organic growers. They're widely used by conventional growers, um, but they still just they make up in terms of you know the number of acres in California in 2013 that were sort of treated with those, so that's how much, you know, sort of penetration they had in in the market. Biologicals are 1.2% of those acres, so it's still small after decades of investment. Still a lot of fun. I'm still working on projects to do with that, but it'd be unrealistic to think this is going to change the world overnight. Yeah, I, I love the idea, and we use them in our growth chambers now and then, our greenhouses we use, for, especially for mite control. We'll use things like predatory mites, and I always love when I get the little box and I take them out and I dump them out, and they're so cool looking. But they, And they do a nice job to clean things up, but it, it isn't persistent enough. And when you have the opportunity to use a quick spray you know, to knock them out, it, I can only imagine in a production scenario how the 
convenience of using a chemical that's specific for mites really supersedes the capacity to effectively deploy a biological control. Well, and that's why greenhouses is one of the main places where they've, they've really had a big impact. It's just you have a more predictable environment. If you have a living thing and you're kind of throwing it out into the world, um, it's a really hot day, really dry conditions, you know, it, it may or may not work very well. And so actually the main way that they are being used is in conjunction with synthetics. So it's sort of a, a backup and a supplementation and a resistance management sort of strategy. The the companies that have been actually quite, you know, commercially successful, like like an AgriQuest or a Marone or somebody like that, really a, a tremendous amount of their market is not as a standalone, but as as a an enhancement to a good rational synthetic program. Yeah, so we've talked about a, a variety of modalities to be able to control pests, and whether we're talking weeds or insects or whatever, we haven't yet talked on biotech in the Talking Biotech podcast. And what are some of the genetic engineering approaches that could be most promising, and how do you imagine the future working with genetic engineering to solve some of these issues? Well, if we can talk about a future that's unbridled by... Um, the limitations, the irrational limitations that have happened, there's a lot that could happen. So for a lot of our crops in California here, and that would be true tremendously of Florida as well, um, if you're talking about a crop that you can do conventional breeding, a lot of pest resistance can be done that way. You can go to diverse genetics, do crosses, you know, come up with resistance. It you, you can sort of stay ahead of the evolution of the pest to a certain degree. That works really nicely. But let's talk about, you know, the big one in California, which would be wine grapes. Well, you're not going to breed new wine grapes um, and make crosses which are possible between some of the non-vinifera species, you know, the vinifera being the European wine grape, you know, we've got several species of American grapes that you could do crosses with. Well, you're not going to do that because you wouldn't have the quality and the tradition and, you know, just the whole knowledge of what variety works well that you've developed over hundreds of years. You're not going to mess with the grape variety. You're going to grow Cabernet Sauvignon. You're going to grow Viognier. You're going to grow Chardonnay. So the thing is, with genetic engineering you could go to the Concord grapes and the Scuppernong grapes and things that exist here and say, well, are there resistance genes there that I could move singly into Cabernet Sauvignon and make it more powdery mildew resistant? You know, this yeah. is entirely possible. I, this is what should be being done with a crop like coffee in Central America, where rust has finally made it and climate change is making rust worse there are plenty there's plenty of genetic diversity in cafea species around the world and uh, there, there are genes that you could be moving into the arabica coffee um, that doing through conventional breeding would just take forever and you have problems of chromosome doubling and you know it's just a nightmare to try to do breeding and again you have quality characteristics that you care about. 
I mean, the example of where this is actually happening today is in potatoes, right? A potato is an extremely hard thing to breed. They basically very rarely make seed. Um, one of my potato plants in, in my uh, garden this year actually made fruit, and that's an extremely rare event. I saved some of the seed because, yeah, that's just unusual. Yeah. That's why we're still growing potato varieties that are 100 years old because it's really hard to come up with a new one and to figure out how to grow it and how to store it and all those sorts of things. I just wanted to save that and have that put away. Let me uh, mute this and we should be all right. Okay. Um, so you the, really started to break up when you started to talk about potatoes. Okay. And so let's, um, uh, you were talking about graves. Let me just jump in here and then we'll pick it up from there. Um, okay. And I'll find a way to splice it in. Yeah, way back on uh, Talking Biotech episode probably three or four, we talked to Sean Miles about grapes and about grape diversity and how the grape industry and grape growers are so recalcitrant to new ideas and new germplasm because of the tradition and uh, other issues. Um, but even something like even citrus, you know, you mentioned coffee here, even in citrus in the state of Florida, you can't breed trees fast enough. And so ge- genetic engineering solutions seem to be pretty quick. And so what are some of the other places where a GE solution might be very helpful? Well, c- certainly, yes, in, in potatoes, which, you know, don't normally go by seed, in, in grapes, where you don't want to mess with long-term quality traits in coffee where uh, you you need something quick if you want to help smallholder farmers and you don't want a 20-year breeding process. Um, th- there are a whole lot of crops where it could be extremely useful. Um, where you would, at the end of the process, get what you would have gotten through traditional breeding, perhaps, but it would take you a generation to do it. And maybe we should wrap up just kind of by tying all of these ideas together. So we talked about old school pesticides, uh, newer technologies. We talked about genetics. We talked a little bit about breeding and biotechnology. And I know how I think about this, but I'm not going to bore people with that. How do you see the idea of the integration of all of these techniques into pest management strategies? Well, what I wish that we had was um, sort of a certification, which was sort of a, a thing better than organic, which would be a science-based certification that said, you've got people who are perfectly willing to spend more because they want to do the right thing. They want things, you know, to, to be done for good environmental reasons. But the way that we've defined organic doesn't do that because it doesn't allow you a whole bunch of things that from a science point of view would make perfect sense. We, we don't actually need an organic certification system here to protect people anymore from pesticides and pesticide residues. In fact, if you think about it, if we really only had a food system where people who could spend more money could be safe, that would be a wholesale failure of an, our entire food system, right, in a de- democratic comp- country. Um, so, But that fortunately isn't the case. But 
we need to have the ability to sort of reward and encourage whatever is the best thing to do from a science point of view. Sometimes that's going to be biotechnology. Sometimes that's going to be creative new chemistry. Sometimes that's going to be a biological control. It should be driven by what actually makes sense, not by ideology. I agree 100%. And I love the idea of multiple strategies converging to solve a, a human problem. And feeding more people with less environmental impact is not going to be a biotech solution. It's going to be biotech plus thinking about, uh, you know, nutrition and, uh, you know, maybe uh, the um, uh, other types of modalities with using predatory insects or whatever. It's going to be so integrated. And we're learning that from the citrus crisis more than anything else. Right. That there's no easy way to solve a complex biological problem. And right now, you know, here we are in 15, 2015, staring at a growing population, and it will take the integration of many different modalities to address that. And um, I, I really appreciate your answer on that. Ultimately, you know, when I hear people say, oh, well, organic will feed the world, biotech will feed the world, all these sort of things, I want to reject all of those single answers. And I want to say only farmers will ever feed the world. And they are the ones who actually integrate all these things. So when we talk about it's an integrated solution, well, the only people who are going to integrate that are farmers. And I think we need to have more respect for what farmers find to be useful. And I could never say that more eloquently than you just did. So I'm going to stop there. Uh, where can we find you on social media if people are interested to follow you on Twitter or maybe learn more about what you do? I'm... I'm on Twitter as at GrapeDoc, going back to the early days. And then um, my, my blog is Applied Mythology, and uh, I'm a contributor for Forbes. And absolutely check out Applied Mythology. It's one of my favorite blogs. I really appreciate that a lot. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for joining us, Steve. It's wonderful to be able to, you know, spend probably more time with you today than I have since you and I were in Hawaii. And it was a wonderful time uh, that I'll never forget. And uh, thank you so much for spending the time tonight. Yeah. Aloha. <laughs> Mahalo, as it said. Mahalo, that's what you say. Sorry. Yeah, Aloha is good. Is uh, hello and goodbye. Mahalo means uh, I think thank you and uh, something like that. It seemed to be what they would say. So Mahalo. Yeah, yeah. So Mahalo to you too. And mahalo to you, too, for listening to another episode of Talking Biotech. We bring to a close number 18 with Dr. Steve, uh, Dr. Steve Savage. And uh, almost said Dr. Steve Sargent. That's a guy I work with here. Uh, Dr. Steve Savage, who is like cracking open an encyclopedia on insect and weed control and the chemicals that are used to do that. And a wonderful person to interact with. And I do urge you to uh, reach out to him at GrapeDoc on Twitter. Uh, also, Applied Mythology is a great place to read up on these particular issues. And so that brings to a close uh, number 18 of Talking Biotech. Uh, my name is Kevin Fulta. I thank you so much for listening and look forward to next time on Talking Biotech. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech 
at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. I had an apartment in Los Angeles and I had a neighbor. And whenever he would knock on my wall, I knew he wanted me to turn my music down and that made me angry because I like loud music. So when he knocked on the wall, I'd mess with his head. I'd say, go around. I cannot open the wall. I don't know if you have a doorknob on the other side, but over here there's nothing. (laughs) You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, Scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.